Hello and welcome to the Free Movement Podcast. I'm CJ McKinney. The Office of the Immigration Services Commissioner tries to make sure that migrants don't get duff immigration advice. It's an extremely important job given how complicated and expensive the immigration system is and how desperate people can be for information on how to navigate it. How good a job is the OISC doing? Well, the man in charge, John Tuckett, says the organization needs to be transformed to meet the challenges of the 2020s. So why does the OISC need to be shaken up? What does this transformation plan entail and how will that affect OISC advisors? Joining me to discuss this is John Tuckett, the Immigration Services Commissioner, his own self. Welcome, John. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for being here, CJ. It's a pleasure and I welcome the opportunity to explain some of the things you've outlined there. Absolutely. We'll start by explaining uh, the very basics. What is it that you and your organization, the OISC, do? The OISC was created a number of years ago by government to regulate uh, immigration services and advice. Now, what this means in practice is regulating what we call immigration advisors, people who provide advice to would-be asylum seekers or visa seekers or whoever they are on immigration matters. By law, you have to be regulated by ourselves or another regulator if you are going to provide advice on immigration matters. To provide advice on immigration without being regulated is illegal. So what we do is we do two things, really. We regulate all those registered advisors who have signed up with us and we check on how they're doing. And at the same time, we look for those people who are operating illegally. Now, sadly, this is a sector in which the there is a large number of people who are providing immigration advice illegally. When we come to hear of that, we will investigate and, if necessary, we will prosecute and take them to the courts um, uh, for the courts to decide what is the appropriate action. So it's a, a sort of two sides of the coin, one providing good quality advice by regulating advisors and, secondly, ensuring that uh, people are protected from the illegal aspects. You don't regulate everyone who's providing advice in this sector. You regulate advisors, solicitors and barristers have their own regulator. They can also provide immigration advice. And so do you find that challenging? You've only got partial oversight of the sector? You're absolutely right. It is. It's a complex um, field. There are solicitors who provide immigration advice as part of their general solicitor functions. There are barristers who provide immigration advice, particularly when it gets to courts. There are legal executives who provide immigration advice, and it does make for uh, somewhat um, strained relations at times um, because you've got four different regulatory bodies, each regulating their own particular group of advisors. The advisors that you regulate, they have to register with you in order to, to operate. What else do they have to do? They have to pass an exam and they have to keep up to date. Just outline that first. We have a what we call a competence assessment which is run for us by a company to whom we've outsourced it, where the competence and the knowledge of immigration affairs is tested. Once they've been registered and are on our books, as it were, and they're practicing, we will then make sure they maintain their expertise and their knowledge by regularly auditing them, visiting them, looking at their files, visiting their premises, asking them questions about how things are going, and so that way we ensure that immigration advisors are remaining up to date and hopefully are continuing to give good quality advice. Okay, so you keep an, keep an eye on people after they've been registered. And the other people you keep an eye on is uh, the rather large group you mentioned of people who are not registered, uh, but nevertheless give immigration advice, which is illegal. Uh, I saw you speak at a 
conference a couple of years ago, not, not long after you were appointed to this job. And you said, I've never come across an area where criminal activity is so rife. What did you mean by that? Well, I, I think sadly, this is an area where there are, are people who are quite blatantly abusing uh, asylum seekers, people who are seeking immigration advice, offering them so-called services, um, and sometimes fleecing individuals of money and possessions, and they are then becoming victims of abuse by these people. Now, I'm not saying everyone's like that, but there are people who do that, and we fear that what we actually see is probably only the tip of the iceberg. And one of the things which I'm sure we'll come on to in in transforming the OISC is how do we become an organisation that's got a wider reach and much better able to have uh, get a handle on these illegal activities. So it, it's it's a big problem. And it is, I know, within the Home Office, some see this as the biggest threat to the integrity of the immigration system overall. It is, um, it, it is a big problem. Yeah. And as you say, we'll come on to how you plan to better tackle that in future. But I just want to get a sense of what you're doing about that today and and kind of where you spend your time. Because when I look at your last uh, annual reports um, about your two main functions, overseeing advisors versus chasing unregistered advisors, it seemed like you spend, would it be fair to say, most of your energy and resources on overseeing registered advisors? I think it would be fair to say that in the past, we probably have focused more on the regulation side of life than on the protection and enforcement side. But what I'm trying to do is to turn this organisation into one where we can get that right balance between both regulation and protection. And uh, see, we'll see how we can do it. Just to give put some numbers on this, uh, last year, the OISC decided over a thousand applications by advisors to stay registered, 750 new registration applications, which you formally investigated, only 48 complaints about unregistered advisors. And is that what you mean about perhaps there's a bit of an imbalance? We are by statute uh, obliged to, um, if someone applies to become a registered advisor, we are bound by law to take them through the competency assessment. So to a degree, as many as apply, we've got to just make the resources available to take them through the process. In terms of the number of investigations, we're very, very dependent upon receiving a complaint, whether it's a member of the public or someone who sought advice, which has then turned out to be bad We're dependent upon them to initiate investigations. I'm hoping that we can become much more of a proactive organisation and go out and seek out where these people are rather than wait for a complaint to come in and the complaint being the catalyst that then gets us going into action. Absolutely. And before we move on to your reform plans, how would you describe the quality of immigration advice available in the UK at the moment overall? It's a very, very mixed picture. In terms of advice given out by our, as it were, immigration advisors, I'm pretty confident that by and large, that's good advice because we regularly check it. We ensure that they are up to, advisors are up to speed, as it were, with the latest regulations, and we audit them. And in fact, we as a regulator audit our advisors much more regularly and thoroughly than other regulators do, for example, in solicitors and barristers and legal executives. But then, of course, you have all the advice that's available on the Internet. Now, this is a a growing area, and particularly with uh, COVID over the last two years, people have been turning to the Internet um, as a first sort of port of call for immigration advice. Now, it's almost impossible to regulate 
the absolute mass of detail that's available on all the various websites on immigration issues and advice as how to get visas, um, asylum seekers, or whatever the issue may be. And that is becoming um, uh, quite a headache for us to work out how we actually address that. We've all seen the challenges of policing social media uh, with all the discussions that have been around Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and it's the same order of magnitude if you start thinking about how does a single organization regulate advice coming out on a website or coming out through social media. Furthermore, when we were set up, I think it's about 20, 25 years ago, as it were, um, social media didn't exist in anything like it does now. And I don't think anyone really envisaged this form of source of advice being one that would need to be addressed. So that is something we've got to look at in the future. That makes sense. And that takes us neatly to your reform plan. Uh, it's got a name, Transforming the OASC. So in a nutshell, what is that plan? Just give us the, the elevator pitch, first of all. The elevator pitch is the OISC historically has been based in London and has focused its activities around London and the southeast because that's where the vast majority of the immigrant populations in the United Kingdom actually live and where most immigration advice is. However, immigration is changing. The government has changed all the laws associated with uh, immigration and rules for coming in. The EU, we are no longer part of the EU, and suddenly the whole of the EU citizens who want to come to England are potential seekers of immigration advice, and they have a footprint which is totally different across the whole of the United Kingdom from that which we had a few years ago. So the changing government picture, the changing nature of people who are seeking advice, we as the OISE need to get out from London and we need to have a footprint across the United Kingdom. We need to spread our resources, and so the aim is to create regional teams and we'll have three regions, one for the north of England, one for the centre, one for the London and the south. And our operational teams will live and work in the regions. And the idea is that we will have a much better footprint and much better contact with local organisations within each region, better able to support our advisors there, better able to understand who's operating illegally, and better able to work collaboratively with all the other agencies the charities like Refugee Action, Citizen Advice Bureaus and other enforcement agencies on a local regional basis. And I think this will give us a much better quality of service as a result. So you'll have people based uh, more regionally, get them outside of London, and that's great. But th there won't be offices, uh, OAC offices, if I read your plan right. It'll be a digital work from home organisation. All our regional teams, they will all work from home, but all their homes will in the future be within the region in which they're assigned to um, so that they can, they can get that local knowledge from where they live and where they work. Yes, but we will not have offices. Um, I think COVID has shown that we can work quite successfully as an office from a totally working from home setup. And it's not that everyone is sitting at home, as it were, on their backsides 24-7. No, they will be out, up and about and moving around the regions, visiting, talking with advisors, talking with other agencies and partners. It must be challenging. I can see how business as usual can be done working from home. But if you're trying to implement reforms to an organization, is it not going to be challenging not to, to be a, sort of in the cloud? Uh, it is, it is. And I mean, I've done many transformations in my career across the public sector in a whole range of different contexts. And this one is quite unique in that sense. Yes, 
Uh, on the other hand, I, I'm very proud of the organization, which is welcoming the change, moving forward with it. Uh, yes, we have our hiccups, uh, as any change program of this nature does, but I'm confident we can make working from home a success. The benefits for us as an organization are we avoid the heavy costs of having to run a central office. We enc It encourages people to get out and uh, be on the road, as it were. And by saving monies by not having offices, we can, of course, invest in more frontline operational staff. So that's how you'll structure yourselves. But you've also talked in the plan about uh, putting the advice seeker at the center of what you do. So what does that mean? The seeker of advice, whoever he or she is from whatever country they come from, they are the ultimate customer of immigration advice, which whether it comes from a solicitor, an immigration advisor or whatever. And as a regulator, I think we have to think about what does that ultimate customer need? What do they want? We often know what we think. We think we know what they want, but what do they need? And how can we regulate the sector in a way that the sector then best meets their needs? Because if we do that, then the chances are, if we provide good quality advice and meet their needs, the applications that will go into the home office will be of a much better quality. The applications that go in will have a greater chance of success. The applications that go in will not tie people up in legal challenges, court hearings and all the rest of it. And so what are you going to do differently as the OASC in kind of practical terms to make that happen? Because it can't just be a matter of you'll, have, you'll be decentralized and hey presto, we have good advice across the country. I, I think the OISC in the past has has been, um, and it's done it's done its job very well that it was meant to. But by and large, as it were, it waited until something came to the OISC before it took action. So it waited for yourself, for example, to make an application to become an immigration advisor before we then processed it and put you through a competency test. We waited for a complaint to come in before we started an investigation. The one thing I want to shift and change to is for us to be proactive and go out and, for example, look in one region and say, well, actually, where do we not have advisors where we ought to? Have we got enough advisors in Manchester, for example? Or are, is there a shortage of advisors in Manchester? What can we do to encourage people to become advisors in Manchester if we think there's a shortage of advisors in that particular area? And that's us being proactive and going out and finding where the issues are and doing something about it rather than waiting for someone to come to us. And equally, I want us to be out there talking with people about where do you hear about illegal activities? Do you know of anyone who's operating without a license? And when we've done this sporadically in the past, when you start getting out there, you find there's a lot of information available uh, but you have to go out and find it. And once you've found it, then you've got to be there and follow it up. So again, this is in that area, I want us to be much more proactive and outward seeking rather than waiting for issues to come to us. That's really interesting. And those two things must go hand in hand. That if you see there are very few regulated advisors and advisors in a certain area, you must be suspicious that there are a lot of unregulated advisors in that area. Absolutely. Absolutely. The two go hand in hand. If you are a registered OFC advisor, you know how the system works, you're comfortable uh, with the organization. Uh, how are you going to feel about this? Is, is your experience of being regulated going to be different uh, in 2024? I, I would hope so, yes, in a number of ways. Firstly, um, 
we have in the past um, assigned, as it were, a designated what we called a caseworker to each immigration advisor who stayed, and it was the same one-to-one relationship that would stay for a number of um, years. Now, we are changing that. The immigration advisors in a region will relate with the regional team as a whole. And so they won't have their own designated individual advisor that they've had in the past. Now, that, for some, will be a change that they may welcome, they may not welcome. And it's a bit like the change from when we all had our own personal family doctor on a one-to-one basis to being going to a surgery now where you could be seen by any one of the doctors. There are pros and cons to the, the broader system. Hopefully, we'll be able to provide a lot more personal advice to immigration advisors because we're there locally and we'll meet them much more regularly than we would have done if we'd been uh, stuck back in London. I think we in the past have been quite prescriptive in the way that we've asked advisors to work with whole pages and pages of you must do this, you must do that, you mustn't do this, etc., etc. I want to get us into what we're calling principle-based regulation, where we just establish some core principles by which advisors must abide, and giving advisors more freedom then to work within that framework rather than prescriptively following a whole host of uh, detailed instructions. And again, I'm not criticising my predecessors. When this organisation was set up, there was no such thing as a regulated immigration advisor. They were starting from scratch. So... This is how um, I think a system can best mature, evolve and develop and work. So our aim is to work with advisors to develop more proactive ways of partnership working, whereby people, for example, can assess themselves, maybe carry out self-audit, as well as us auditing them, rather than us doing it all as a big brother type approach. And do you expect that people will kick off about this, for want of a better word? Because, uh, you know, some people might be more comfortable with the prescriptive approach. People liked having the family doctor. They may not take uh, too kindly to the surgery. I mean, are you expecting a lot of pushback? I'm, I am sure there will be pushback. And it, it is a, a, a culture change. And you don't achieve a, a change in culture and a change in approach like this without some people obviously liking it. Some may not like it. Our job, though, is to show what the benefits are and how this will benefit um, advisors, how it will benefit the advice seeker, and how we think at the end of the day this will produce a much more effective immigration advice set of services across the UK. And then on the enforcement side, can you tell me how you're, well, to quote from your plan, proactively seek out illegal activities, especially outside of London. Can you expand on how you're going to be doing that? We, we have um, um, our regional teams will be made up of the operational members of the team will be made up of two kinds of people, one of whom have been caseworkers who've worked on the regulation side, working with immigration advisors. The others are our team of investigators. Now, in the regional teams, they will all be called regional officers. And we are slowly going to meld the two roles uh, such that we have they, they can help out on the other side of the house, as it were. Now, what I'm expecting in the initial phases when we move into the uh, regional teams in April this year is that the investigators will start getting out and about, talking with other enforcement agencies, talking with other, uh, talking with immigration advisors along the lines of, well, are you happy about what's happening here? Are you aware of any illegal activities going on? Is there anything you think we ought to know that we can start picking up on and investigating? 
will still, of course, rely on complaints coming in from the public or uh, advice seekers who feel they've had a bad deal. But we want to supplement that with us going out and asking the question. Last year, you convicted eight rogue advisors. Uh, It sounds like if you're being proactive, that number should be higher. But is that a specific target? How how should that look? I mean, in the past, um, there's been great store laid by the number of convictions or the number of prosecutions we've done. What I'm after is, yes, prosecutions where prosecution is in the public interest and it's cost effective to do, because actually taking um, a potential criminal through a prosecution is an expensive and lengthy business. My aim, though, is to disrupt the criminal activity that's going on. Now, if I can stop that criminal activity going on, then I'm stopping uh, anyone seeking advice being mistreated and people being fleeced of money or whatever it is. What I'm after is a, a range of enforcement measures that disrupt the activity. And some of those disruption techniques may not involve going to a prosecution. Yeah, what would they be specifically? Well, you can give, uh, once you're aware of something going on, the, the simple thing is you give someone a caution and a warning. And sometimes that is enough to stop them. Once they know that we know about them and that they're op- operating illegally and we've let them know about it uh, and they've stopped their activity. We have achieved the aim of disrupting the activity. And if it's not worth then pursuing a major prosecution, then we might say, okay, we we are not going to prosecute. So we can do that. We can give warnings. And we're trying restitution techniques now as well, whereby if we come across someone who's had a complaint, asking, well, look, someone's made a complaint. Would you think about restoring uh, some of the monies you've taken uh, from them back to them? Now, You might say, well, that's like asking a turkey to sign up for Christmas. Uh, And it's not easy, but we have had one or two successes and it's starting to grow. And so what the phrase I use within the OISC is let's have a toolbox. Let's have a number of tools within the toolbox of enforcement, one of which is prosecutions. And yes, we will continue to prosecute, but it's not the only means by which we can disrupt. And that's the aim to disrupt. And do you have all these powers to warn and so on in-house? You don't have to go to the police to do give cautions? Or? We, we have a considerable set of powers. We could do with some more, to be quite honest, and we are discussing with the Home Office at the moment. Uh, I wouldn't like to go into the particular powers we, we're looking for in detail. But Oh, go on. No, 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 no. There are areas where we would like um, additional powers to make our enforcement activities even more effective. But I, I'm encouraged But the, the support we've had from the Home Office and ministers in particular uh, on this whole area of enforcement has been very, very strong indeed. And I know that they look at this uh, as a very, very important part of the OISC's work. So they are receptive to giving you more powers without going into what they might be? That they're open to the idea? Let, let us say we're discussing it with the Home Office, with both ministers and the policy officials as to what, what we can do. Okay, so interesting stuff on the enforcement side. There's a bit in the plan about engagement with the wider immigration sector. Can you tell me about that? I think it goes back to your point at the beginning, that this is a complex sector with solicitors, barristers, legal executives, and um, the OISC. And I think we all, uh, we meet regularly as regulators. um, And I think we all agree that the the more we can do to... uh, as it were, have similar standards and similar ways of operating, the more beneficial it will be. For example, if someone wants to complain about the advice they've been given, 
It depends whether it was a barrister, a legal executive, a solicitor, or an immigration advisor as to which method of complaint they're going, because everyone's got a different way of complaining. Would you want to set up like a single point of contact to lodge a complaint, for example, on any immigration advice? Is that 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 has been talked about? Yes, the, whether we could do something of that nature. But as you can imagine, you've got four separate regulators all set up with their own particular uh, ways of operating. Um, trying to find a common ground between them is is I'm not saying it's impossible, but that's where I think. We are the only organisation, as it were, who is dedicated full time to immigration advice regulation. All the other regulations, like their, uh, the people they regulate, are doing this as part of um, other work as well. Some of the listeners to this podcast would be immigration solicitors. They'd be in that sector. They might work for NGOs and they might be listening and thinking this is all very interesting, John. But like this transformed OASC, does, is this going to affect me in any meaningful way? Well, I, I hope it will in the fullness of time. Um, this is not going to be, um, as it were, a big, big bang transformation that suddenly the whole world changes in immigration advice on the 1st of April. Uh, and so we will have to work at it and take small steps, small gains, and do bits at a time, prove new ways of working. And not all of them will work out well. I've done enough change programs to know that. But you have to be prepared to try something. And if it doesn't deliver what you want to deliver, learn the lessons and try something else. So there's going to be a lot of learning for us. And I hope, though, that there will be a lot more contact and collaborative working with our partners that at, in a few years' time, people will say, yeah, the system really it can is changing. Jolly good. Uh, is there anything else you would like to tell us about what you're up to before we let you go? No, I think the only thing I would make a plea to all your listeners, whoever you are, from whether you're an immigration advisor, solicitor, or a member of the public or whoever, is we are here as an organisation and we need your help and support in everything we do, and particularly about hearing where these illegal activities may be taking place. So I really would urge people, whilst we will be proactive, we're still going to be dependent on people coming forward and saying, look, you should be aware there's something happening down the road that I don't think is quite right. The other thing I would say is, please, 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 if you ever anyone comes into contact with someone seeking immigration advice and they're thinking of going to whoever it might be, Mr. A or Mr. B, check out, please check out on our website or through whatever regulator is, is this person properly regulated? Please do that because you could save yourself so much time, energy, effort and money Thank you, John. We'll leave it there at John Tuckett's Immigration Services Commissioner. I'm CJ McKinney. This has been a podcast from Free Movement. We do updates, commentary, training and advice on UK immigration and asylum law, www.freemovement.org.uk. Lots of free material on there. Hopefully not one of the dodgy websites that John mentions. Uh, you can become a paying member at forward slash join. I'll be back with the next episode of this podcast with Colin Yo on Friday the 8th of April. Until then, thanks for listening.